0: This is a CBC Podcast. I'm Dr. Brian Goldman. Welcome to White Coat Black Art, the show about medicine from all sides of the gurney. Complain all you like about Canadian health care, but remember to be grateful a life-threatening illness doesn't bankrupt you. And keep in mind, not everyone is so fortunate. An estimated half a million people in Canada don't have health care insurance or aren't covered by our universal health care plan. Landed immigrants who live in provinces where they must wait to qualify for health care. Migrant workers who remained in Canada. Some refugee claimants and some just trying to stay on humanitarian or compassionate grounds. Recently, I met a woman we're calling Grace because she's remained in Canada illegally and risks being deported if we reveal her identity. It didn't start out that way.
1: I came to Canada in caregiver program, so I came to Canada legally.
0: Uh, Why did you decide to come to Canada?
1: Oh, you know, we always like think about our children's future. I came here looking for a greener pasture that someday I can take my children here for a better future. That better future didn't happen.
0: Back when she arrived in 2001, Grace had legal status. She was looking after an ailing senior under what was then called the live-in caregiver program, but she says her abusive husband tracked her down, making life difficult.
1: He became controlling. He beat me up. They get my salary, and sorry, it's so hard. He had a restraining order, but while I was working, he went to my work and he kept bugging me. And I, I had tried to hide because he's hunting me. I don't know what to do first, so I, I, so I broke my contract. That's what happened, that's why I lost my status. Care.
0: So you broke your contract in the caregiver program? Yeah.
1: I tried to find a new job, but still I did not finish it. I was stressed. Maybe I did not ask for help from whatever I can do to go back. And then I just like kept hiding and hiding.
0: Another reason why she stayed on was to support her family. The thing is, when she lost her job... Grace also lost her immigration status. She stayed afloat financially by working under the table in factories and other places. She even managed to keep sending money back home. Leaving the caregiver program also meant losing her health care insurance, which wasn't a problem until she started having fainting spells.
1: A friend said, go to my family doctor so that you can be checked. He sent me for an ECG and then the result was not good. On my way home, I received a call and said, I have to go to emergency. And then, oh my God.
0: At the ER, doctors took a medical history. When the hospital learned that Grace was uninsured, a clerk took a financial history too.
1: I was there and then they said, do you have any you know, insurance? Do you have hope? I don't know if I will die of the questions or of my sickness because how will you pay? I'm so proud to say I'm paying cash. I have $300 on my pocket. And then they put me on the emergency. I said, I don't know what they will do to me. And then they said, they, they attached me on this apparatus. What will I do? And then people are, kept coming and coming, questioning me. How can I pay?
0: Grace got a pacemaker and spent a total of nine days in hospital. Then came time to settle up. How much
1: did all this cost? like almost 30,000
0: 30,000 Yeah. and you paid it
1: yeah i don't know how to pay it but bills are like pouring just like oh my god just like, will i die of the bill or will i die of my sickness and then when the minute i got a uh, pacemaker i was sent home in 4 hours or 6 hours i was sent home because so that my bill won't pile up
0: how much of it did you eventually pay off
1: it's on a collection agency you know collection agency. They're very, very hard. So now I don't know how to pay it sometimes. It's like maybe I just owe like less than 5000 right now.
0: Out of the 30 you have paid 25000 of it? I
1: don't know how I pay it, but I'm paying lots. Grace
0: recovered, but with a newfound awareness of the daunting financial implications of getting sick in a country in which you don't qualify for health insurance. That and some other issues were in her mind last summer when she found a breast lump.
1: Yeah, I found a lump on my breast. And then on top of that, I don't have a job. And then my landlady is sending me out because um, she, they're selling the house. And then my mother had a stroke. Uh, so I put my own health on hold, but maybe it's the stress. My breast flared up. I was just like so sick. And then I went to a walk clinic. Oh, they gave me an antibiotic. Uh, after your antibiotics, you need to have a mammogram and an ultrasound. So, it's You actually
0: like, had a mammogram and an ultrasound? Yes. How did you get those?
1: Uh, I paid like almost 400 because it's only for one breast. I thought I don't have problem with the other one. So I paid for that. The next day, I, I received a call from uh, the family doctor that I went to. They said... Oh I'm sorry you have a lung and then he talked to a North York Hospital he said they won't look after you they need a guarantor
0: that that the that, bill will be paid
1: yeah they send a bill like a 1400 bill for just like a maybe a bus or initial test and then you should have a guarantor who will guarantee like uh, I don't know how much it will cost on everything so after that, I keep googling where I can go. Then I found this clinic.
0: The clinic she's talking about is called the Canadian Centre for Refugee and Immigrant Healthcare, located in Scarborough on the east side of Toronto. Okay, so you're going to show me around?
2: Yeah, sure. So this is our dental clinic up in here because we don't have enough space downstairs our
0: Liberty and Daya, a part-paid and part-volunteer office manager, shows me around. What does it take to qualify to be a patient here?
2: Uninsured. You don't have um, health coverage from the government, so we take anybody. We don't, you know, discriminate anybody. People coming from Quebec, um, from all over Canada, when they just moved to Toronto, because, you know, after living in another province, you come to Toronto, you have the three-month waiting before you get your OHIP here, so they come here.
0: What kind of services can they get when they come here?
2: Primary care. Like, um, they see the doctor.: the,
0: the clinic station. gets its operating cash from private donations plus a bit of special government funding. The doctors, nurse practitioners, dietitians, dentists, and other health providers volunteer their time. They too receive a small stipend under a government program, but donate those fees back to the clinic to help keep it afloat.: How many people use the services here?:
2: We have um, like three thousand. Wow. <laughs> Some of them are frequent coming here. Some of them like for just immunization or you know urgent care.
0: So. It didn't seem like the clinic for a woman with suspected breast cancer like Grace. Still it's not like she had other options.
1: So I called. I said I had a problem. I said I think I found a, they found a lump on my breast and then uh, I think I have cancer but Nobody will look after me, I don't know what to do. So she accepted me, they helped me here. They said that they'd update
3: the pathology report, but it doesn't seem to be from November 18th. Do we have a updated?
0: In addition to the GPs, the clinic also has volunteer specialists like this newly graduated oncologist, who's about to give Grace her breast cancer test results.
3: How are you? I'm close I've heard about you a little oh. bit from Dr. Colford. Um Before we started, I just wanted to get an idea of how much you know about what's going on.
0: Although she's fully qualified, she doesn't yet have privileges to work at a hospital, which she'll need to practice oncology. Seeing Grace in this ad hoc way, no matter how laudable, might make some hospitals uncomfortable with hiring her. So we've decided to withhold her name.
3: Um, the redness, has that gotten better or do you still have a lot of redness?
1: It is still red. It keeps flaring up, flaring up.
3: Is there a lot of pain? Lately, I'm feeling weak. Yeah.
1: This is Grace's
0: first appointment with the oncologist and the first time she's hearing the test results. I can't imagine what she's going through.
1: Like, uh, I have to face this. I say I have to be brave. I don't want to feel down, down, down yeah. because I'm afraid that I can't go up anymore. I have to keep going.
3: We know that there cancer is in the left breast yes. and we know it has spread to the lymph nodes. Um, from the information that I know so far, it, it's considered a stage 3, okay? Stage 3 is still curable though. Okay? We can still cure a stage 3. Okay. Okay. Good. I know. I know. Okay. But I think what we'll need to work on is getting you to treatment now.
0: With Grace out of the room, I had a chance to speak to the oncologist doctor to doctor about that four-month delay from the time Grace first felt the lump until now.
3: If this was an hip funded patient who had symptomatic breast mass to not be worked up over four months, that would change outcomes definitely.
0: You mean her prognosis would be worse because because of the four-month wait?
3: Yeah, because with time, cancer grows. And so even in terms of curative rates, it's easier to cure a stage one than it is a stage three. So if we had caught her earlier, then potentially it would be easier um, to cure her.
0: Um, and you're donating your time because?
3: Well, because I was a refugee and my parents were refugees, so... I thought, you know, they deserve the same care that we provide patients in Ontario. And it's hard to see that, you know, care that should be delivered regardless of someone's status or anything. It's, it's a human right um, that they shouldn't have to go without.
0: To the volunteer cancer specialist who saw Grace, this whole situation is something new and disturbing. Not so a family doctor who has seen many
4: patients like her. So my name is Paul Culford. I'm a family doctor in Scarborough, and I am a volunteer uh, physician at the Canadian Centre for Refugee and Immigrant Health Care, and also at the Centre, I have a role as the medical lead and uh, supporting fundraising.
0: When I spoke with Dr. Callford in our Toronto studio, I began by asking him how typical Grace's story is.
4: Well, sadly, Grace is very typical. We see many, many people in walks of life who don't have access to health care for a host of reasons, who suddenly confront uh, daunting health challenges that are life threatening. There's the acute problems coming in with the pneumonia and appendicitis, certain types of infectious diseases. But really, uh, the majority of them are people who come up with things like cancer have chronic diseases like diabetes where they haven't had a blood test in five years and have an ulcer on their leg and they run the risk of an amputation and uh, sort of chronic disease management that has been unmanaged for many years because they're coming from poorer countries without a primary care system. Those are the kinds of things we see and some of them become very serious and very urgent quite quickly. The oncologist Who saw Grace and gave her the news
0: uh, told us the delay in getting a diagnosis and treatment for stage 3 breast cancer, which Grace has, will have an impact on her long-term survival. How often do you
4: see that? Well, (sighs) I'm sorry. This is a very difficult subject. It's upsetting. It's extraordinarily upsetting in Canada. The last... uh, the last two patients before Grace had advanced, actually three that I'm thinking of in the past six months. Two of them were a returning Canadian, and they found out they had advanced cancer. One of them was an artist living in a Central American country, a Canadian you know, born here, lived here, 53 years old, came back, wanted some help, never got it. Even though we brought forward the diagnosis he had, which was a form of um, colon cancer that had metastasized to the liver, and uh, he died waiting. So the delays are deadly, and they don't have to happen. How do you go about getting treatment for Grace and others like her? It's very difficult to get care for a person like Grace when she doesn't have that number, either Interim Federal Health or OHIP. So we have doctors and nurse practitioners, nurses, dentists, volunteering, and we look for uh, donations. It's now, what, January, and this mass in her breast is now three times the size it was And she's finally getting to see a surgeon that we're very thankful for doing the consult and considering the surgery. And we've raised funding. We have a GoFundMe page for her. And we think we're going to get her surgery done. And I say we think. It shouldn't be a question for you or I or for our wife or for our sister. It isn't a question. For Grace, we have to go through the business office. There suddenly becomes a chain The hospital business office. Yes. We have to convince them that we can cover the actual costs of the operating room. And this is what
0: Grace herself said that she had to, when she approached hospitals personally, that she had to cover the cost.
4: Yeah, and Grace has been working here for 20 years, and she's been off the grid. And every time she purchases a coat or a pair of gloves or whatever she purchases, she pays taxes. And the people who employ her, their businesses are usually sweatshop-type businesses. They thrive. And when they thrive, Canada thrives. And for Grace not to be Canadian enough, when does she become Canadian enough for us to care enough to be able to say, look, you, let's get this surgery done for you. Let's not talk about the business office.
0: What's it like sitting across from a patient and telling them, I, we tried and we can't get you the treatment you need? Huh.
4: It's devastating to them. And to you as a caregiver where you're used to making promises you can keep, not promises you can't keep. And we will, in the last resort, say, you have to use the eMERGE now.
0: In our, in our current system, based on your experience, if you diagnosed appendicitis mm-hmm.
4: in, in your clinic and mm-hmm. sent the patient to eMERGE, would mm-hmm. they take the appendix out? Yes, because it's a life-threatening illness immediately. And the problem is it's not standardized across this province about you can go into one hospital in one community, one hospital down the road, and you'll get a different definition of whether they're going to take them in or they're not going to take them in, what they think is life-threatening, what they don't think is life-threatening.
5: Hey, it's Anna Maria Tremonti, and I'm excited to tell you about my new podcast. It's called More, and I'll be talking to people you may think you already know until you hear them here. We've got a little more time to explore and to probe and even to play a little. So get ready for the likes of David Suzuki, Katherine O'Hara, Margaret Atwood, and many others. You can find more with Anna Maria Tremonti wherever you get your favorite podcasts.
0: You're listening to White Coat Black Art. This week, the story of a woman who waited four months to get diagnosed with breast cancer because she doesn't qualify for health care. Although she's lived in Canada for nearly 19 years, she wasn't born here and has no legal status. An estimated half a million people across Canada have no health insurance, including people like Grace who lost their insured status, transient or migrant workers, refugee claimants, and some trying to stay on humanitarian or compassionate grounds. Close to a third of these uninsured people are children. (laughs)
5: <laughs>
0: Recently, I met a pediatrician in Vancouver who tries to take care of them. Dr. Anna Maria Richardson does a checkup on Renata, a four-year-old girl. Both she and her mother Dolores come from Mexico and are uninsured. Dolores says Renata is nonverbal. She's worried about autism spectrum disorder.
5: Muchísimas. Lots, lots and lots of concern. Since the moment they told me that my daughter might have issues with autism and not has stayed in my throat always, not knowing what she really has, I wanted to do even the impossible in order to know whether my daughter has issues with autism or not. As a mother, I'm
1: desperate.
0: Unlike Grace, Renata's present symptoms are not an emergency. On those rare occasions when Dolores has taken Renata to a regular clinic, she was asked about the family's immigration status. She worries that the mere act of getting even routine medical care for Renata puts the family at risk of being deported. Keenly aware of the need to protect the family from that makes it difficult for Dr. Richardson to get Renata diagnosed properly.
5: Well, Renata, when I met her, had a very severe language disorder and she had very atypical social communication as well, so I was quite concerned about autism. At that point, she was maybe three years old. I think she's coming on four. As any screening for children who are not talking, um, I tried to get her hearing checked, and that's where everything snowballed. From that point, I realized that this family Didn't have access to any medical care at all.
0: So what do you do in a situation like that?
5: Here in Vancouver, we have something called a community health clinic. I tried to contact them, but because of where they were living in Burnaby, uh, they require a PHN to see any child. PHN, uh, a health number? Yeah, and then I reached out to uh, nurse practitioners and other support people. I tried at the hospital, um, and I couldn't get her hearing checked. Mum went and it was $100 and it was well above her budget. So I still haven't gotten her hearing checked. You're just talking about a hearing test, which seems like a very basic
0: thing. What else do you think Renata would need if if she were one of your documented patients with a PHN, as you call it?
5: With any patient with a developmental delay, I would Definitely be doing uh, investigations to look for an etiology to the developmental delay. And then alongside and parallel, you also try to find uh, supports for them. So a child who's not talking should be seen by speech and language. It doesn't matter the etiology. If you're providing intervention, you're going to hopefully improve their communication. And even if Renata got proper testing done, getting treatment for autism
0: is very expensive which this family can't afford to pay so so
5: what's the long-term prognosis for her children with autism who don't have intervention don't do well uh, we know even with intervention some children would be underemployed you know would have poor outcomes in terms of education but a child who has atypical typical neurodevelopment without the interventions will for sure do a lot worse than that um it's really difficult at her age to know what her trajectory is going to be Back in Toronto, I told
0: Dr. Paul Caulford, the GP who's been volunteering for decades to treat uninsured patients, about Renata.
4: Right now, 31% of all patients we treat who don't have access to health care in our clinic are children and youth new to Canada. Now... I really want to ask your viewers how they feel about a seven-year-old child struggling to breathe with an asthma attack and a $2,000 bill because and they're a refugee claimant waiting for their approval of their IFH, so they're a claimant. How do they feel about that when a $10 inhaler will help? in many cases, to solve their problem. And they have a $2,000 bill, this was in a case recently, and they won't go back to the eMERGE because they're just too worried about being able to afford it. Nearly 1,700 people have signed a
0: petition asking the government to make health care access universal regardless of immigration
4: status. I asked Dr. Colford how he thinks the system needs to change. I would like to see Ontario eliminate the three-month wait for OHIP. And we would like to perhaps see more frontline clinics where individuals can avoid the ER if they're in a limbo situation. So I'd like to see those kinds of problems solved for a lot less money on the front lines. But as you've said, Grace is not a refugee. She's not a refugee claimant. So there's a lot of
0: people who would fall through the cracks even in that. So what what are you advocating to be done for them?
4: We have gone to the government and asked for the opportunity in urgent life-threatening cases like this. We've asked that on a case-by-case review, we would like to be able to say, have a mechanism to present this and have the government say, let's get this surgery done, and then let's take this for care. Because you've got three choices. Don't treat her, let her die, tell her she has to go home, deport her, or help her. But Grace never gets to that point because in this system, she's a nobody. That's correct. Never mind OHIP. She's got no hip, and, and she doesn't have interim federal health. She's fallen right between the cracks. And I'd like to see those cracks filled with a humanitarian and compassionate approach. I have to ask you about the other side. We know that Canada has a tough
0: enough time providing health care to an aging population. So why should we provide free health care to people who
4: aren't here legally? We need to fix both sides of that coin. You know that as physicians, that we try our best to create a health equity, access to create, reduce the health disparities that happen. Are we going forward to our politicians and saying we believe in health equity within our community for those living and working here alongside us? And
0: what about people who aren't in
4: our community
0: yet? Is there a risk that a wide open policy that treats everybody? Yes. who arrives here, no matter where they came from, no matter what their circumstances, that that makes Canada open to medical tourism.
4: I think those concerns of medical tourism, birth tourism, all of this exists. To me, I think that there is a risk that we could stretch our resources and that there needs to be some element of gatekeeper management I think that's fair. These are debates that are going to happen in society. I don't profess to have the answers, but you and I both know that the provision of health care to a child with pneumonia is an apolitical decision It's without politics it's without judgment. Which way do you want to turn this coin over and look at it? which do you want to say stay out, don't come here, or do you want and we'll take care of our own prosperity, our own growth, our own s- I don't know. People have to answer that question. I can't answer it for them. Thank you for speaking with me. Thanks for having us.
0: It's up to the federal government and the provinces to answer the big questions Dr. Callford and I just talked about. Meanwhile, Callford is getting some answers for Grace and her breast cancer. He's lined up a surgeon. His next challenge, raise enough cash through donations to get the hospital to greenlight. Races operation. That's our show for this week. If you'd like to comment, write to us at cbc.ca/slash whitecoat. Our email address is whitecoat at cbc.ca. I'm on Twitter at NightShiftMD and the show is at CBC Whitecoat. We're also on Facebook. If you've missed any of our programs, you can catch up by subscribing to our podcast at iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us on the CBC Listen app. And if you're looking for the latest in health news and analysis, subscribe to Second Opinion, the weekly newsletter from CBC's health unit at subscriptions.cbc.ca. This week's show was produced by Sujata Berry with help from Jeff Goods, digital producer Ruby Buiza, and the rest of our digital team. Our senior producer is Donna Dingwall. Special thanks this week to producer Ann Penman in Vancouver. That's medicine from my side of the gurney. I'm Brian Goldman. See you next week.
3: For more CBC podcasts, go to cbc.ca/podcasts.